0: Welcome to Finance and Leadership, FTI's financial services podcast. FTI is a global advisory firm. We help organizations manage change, mitigate risk, and resolve disputes. I'm your host, Tilsia Toledo. I have over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. This show is about the people I've met along the way and leading during uncertain times. Today's guest is Terrence Gilroy. Terry is a partner in the New York office of Baker McKenzie and a member of the Compliance and Investigations Practice Group. He advises businesses and individuals on white-collar and financial crime issues. Full bios of all of our guests are available on our website, financeandleadership.com. In this episode, you will hear us discuss the National Defense Authorization Act, NDAA for short. This episode was recorded in December 2020. At that time, the NDAA had not been signed into law. It became effective on January 1st, 2021, along with key anti-money laundering professions. So Terry Gilroy, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Tosia. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm excited to chat with you today because you have such a fascinating background and you've been in a lot of different areas and different fields, but but first I want to talk about just some of the things that are happening overall in the financial services industry and We are certainly living in uncertain times, very dynamic times. We've been in difficult situations before, but this whole timing right now just feels different. So tell me a little bit about how did your organization adjust to folks having to work from home and just dealing with COVID-19?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, interesting times indeed. And I think like everyone else across the globe, we had to sort of figure out how to do our jobs in a different way. And the most obvious impact was that we closed our offices, obviously. And now we're all sort of sitting at, at, in our home offices and doing things like this, where we typically might've been doing them live. From sort of a, you know, my practice perspective, you know, it really, it, it had an, Im- an immediate impact on some of the active investigations that I was involved in. You know, typically when we do an investigation, we sit down uh, across the table from from the interviewees, and we we do our interviews live. You know that allows us to sort of you know to assess body language and that sort of thing, and build a rapport with the interview subject. Reviewing documents, passing documents across the table, and that sort of thing. And almost immediately after, you know, we all sort of learned how to spell Zoom. We were actually conducting these interviews across Zoom and trying to figure out, you know, how do we share screens so we can get this document across? You know, typical typically in an investigation context or an investigation posture, the interview. Subject subject, which is typically an employee, is not represented by counsel. It just so happened that one of the first interviews that I had to do sort of in late March, the employee actually was represented by counsel. And counsel wanted to see all the documents ahead of time. And, you know, what we typically do is we try to give them sort of a robust a description of the interview subtopics, et cetera. Um, but we generally don't like to sort of pass the documents before the interview. And we sort of, that that was our position. And as we were preparing for this particular interview, we realized, you know, Trying to share a screen and trying to give this interviewee the opportunity to sort of review the documents in sort of a timely and efficient manner just wasn't going to work across Zoom. So we actually had to change the way that we conducted that interview by passing the documents across to the interview subject and his counsel um, so they had them in advance so that when we were reviewing a document and asking him uh, him questions about the document he had it in front of him and he had the ability to sort of scroll through it at his own pace rather than myself or the member of our team doing it for them so that's just sort of one just very tangible difference and so sort of we had to change the way that we actually conduct interviews you know there there are many other you know stories like that of you know our firm and certainly your firms and others just really changing the way way we do things it's amazing i spent a lot of time before march 13th Traveling all over the world, and I was, you know, away from New York quite a bit, and and you know, meeting with clients, conducting investigations, you know, doing business development, that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden, we all just started to learn how to do it. Like I said, from our home office, and it's not been perfect, and we've gotten better as we've gone along, for sure. I I think generally, we've you know, we've adapted and and have continued to sort of be able the ability to kind of service our clients.
0: Just given how much has changed, and I completely agree about the whole aspect of conducting any kind of investigation, or at FTI, we often do independent reviews. And we felt the difference about having to do an independent review remotely versus, I think, some of the natural synergies that take place when you're able to sit down with people face to face or just be able to have a casual conversation sometimes with folks. So we definitely felt the impact but I'm curious about from your standpoint, are there things that have actually made things easier so that maybe going forward, even when we do go back to whatever the new normal is that you would still adopt?
1: I do think we're probably going to you know, be doing more of the investigatory work remotely than we ever have in the past. I mean, look, one of the huge costs of investigations is travel and you know, traveling, uh, airfare, hotels in cities all over the world because we want to be on location. There will never be a substitute for that. We're always going to want to be on the ground. And as you say, sort of being, have candid discussions with people. Uh, brainstorm with people while being in the same room. Um, but there will be a, a component of it where we probably will not do as much of that. And we will carve out aspects of an investigation, perhaps categories of interviews that we think can effectively be done online. I think we will start doing those remotely because we've all become so accustomed to this mode of of communicating and interacting and we're getting better at it.
0: Well, that's fair. That's fair. So, I mean, I know you have appeared on a number of panels especially related to BSA, AML sanctions. And and as you know, at FTI, financial crimes is a big part of what we do. From your standpoint, what are some of the recent developments that we should be aware
1: of? From a from an AML perspective, a lot is about to, to change. Just recently, you know, the National Defense Authorization Act, that as we record this, I'm not sure if it's been passed to the president's desk for signature, but it includes this year, the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020. This is probably going to be the biggest sort of impact or the, the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020 probably contains or will affect the most chain to the Bank Secrecy Act, the BSA, which is essentially the fundamental statute that sort of underlies the AML regulatory infrastructure. Probably the biggest change since since the Patriot Act and some of the the provisions that that act will bring to the Bank Secrecy Act. You know, some of them are cosmetic, but some of them will will have a real impact. For example, going to be a pilot program so that U.S. financial institutions will be able to share SARS with their non-U.S. branches And affiliates. That's a big deal. And that will certainly enhance the ability of financial institutions to sort of manage their money laundering and terror financing risk with the ability to share that information. It's difficult right now to do that. And in order to do it, um, procedures need to be put in place, agreements, et cetera. But as a general matter, you can't do it. That's one area where there will be a change. But I think the biggest change that's sort of the the headline of the act to the Corporate Transparency Act, which will, will institute a reporting requirement for corporate entities. So individuals that establish corporations under state law. Will now have an obligation to report beneficial ownership information to FinCEN. So it's sort of long been a criticism of the US anti money laundering regulatory framework that here in the US, we don't have that requirement. You know, we don't have that sort of central repository of corporate ownership information, Uh, you know, similar to a company's house in the UK, for example. And You know, this type of a requirement has been kicking around Congress for quite some time. Corporate Transparency Act, uh, the Counter Act, you know, different bills that have been brought forward in the Congress have included this type of provision. And it's been the subject of sort of much debate within the community for for some time. And now it's actually here will become law when the NDAA is, is signed into law. And it's, it's, it's significant. You know, I think folks are trying to figure out exactly how it's going to be impl- implemented. There are a number of exclusions. Um, so certain entities are not required. But in effect, it's to sort of prevent um, individuals from you know, creating shell companies under U.S. law where beneficial ownership information is, is not available. Now, certainly financial institutions obviously have the requirement to obtain beneficial in- ownership information. The CDD rule. That was implemented back in 2018, acquired uh, financial institutions to obtain Beneficial ownership information of natural persons with respect to legal entities. Um, this will effectively do the same thing, um, and require all you know the, the standards for beneficial the definition of a beneficial ownership will effectively be the same. But it will require if you form a, an LLC under uh, state law in New York, you now have to file a report with FinCEN identifying the beneficial owners of that LLC. So so very significant. Now the database is not going to be public, although there is a provision in the statute. That will allow financial institutions to access the database with respect to uh, certain entities uh, if they have the permission of that entity. So you you may see financial institutions use it as sort of a a double check of information that may have been provided by the customer at onboarding or during periodic review. It's it's significant. Um, I think, you know, the market, uh, the, the AML community right now trying to sort of get their arms around exactly what it will all mean. But for the first time, we will have a requirement in the United States for corporate entities upon registration or upon incorporation to report beneficial ownership uh, with with FinCEN, with uh, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network at the federal level.
0: That sounds pretty significant, you know, especially given that we haven't had anything like that here in the U.S., I guess. There's been a lot of activity at FinCEN. I know even like throughout the year and the thought that they were going to get a bit more aggressive, for lack of a better word, or just be a lot more engaged, just as it related to um, enforcement actions. Are, Are you seeing any of that?
1: Well, I think that that this statute, this provision within the NDAA, the Anti-Money Laundering Act, a number of the components of it are designed to facilitate that engagement by FinCEN. There are some budgeting provisions. There's a requirement for FinCEN to sort of publish uh, supervisory. So, you know, I think it's designed to get FinCEN engaged in light of the sort of, you know, the emerging financial crime, terror financing threat. And, And as criminals get smarter, there's certainly a recognition that the AML, CFT, you know, regulatory framework in the U.S. needs to adapt and it needs to be more agile to sort of meet, meet these emerging threats.
0: We know we're going to have a Biden administration. Naturally, sanctions and sanction programs, are, especially in the U.S., they're used as political tools uh, in a lot of ways. I'm curious if your thoughts about what this new Biden administration mean to sanctions here in the U.S. and our program.
1: Yeah, so we've we've been getting that question a lot um, from clients, and, and it's 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 a good one. Um, and as you said, look, uh, sanctions are a foreign policy tool. They are measures employed by governments in an attempt to impact behaviors as they relate to uh, U.S. foreign policy and national security. They have uh, somewhat become the sort of the foreign policy tool. Of choice for a whole uh, a whole host of reasons, uh, in, in large part because we you know at least the U.S. government uh, believes that they've been that they've been effective, and that there's certainly um, some some evidence to support that. But because they're foreign policy tools, you know you typically can expect to see. Uh, a change in both how they're used and in how the current programs are either changed or enforced at the change of an administration. And the difference in in the current administration and the incoming administration are, are many. And certainly foreign policy and the use of sanctions is one area. And, you know, folks have been asking us, well, what does it mean for you know individual programs? And I think it's hard to to get very specific. But I think as a general matter, and I'll take you know Cuba for example. You know, under under the Obama administration, a number of the the Cuban sanctions were relaxed, and we saw things like uh, general licenses for certain categories of travel implemented. We saw uh, an exception or a general license for for U-turn transactions, so payments that originate and terminate outside the United States, but clear through the United States in which uh, a Cuban national has an interest, those were authorized under the Obama administration. Well, the Trump administration rolled a lot of that back. I think what we might see, I think we might see um, a reintroduction of things like some of the travel general licenses and perhaps even the U-turn authorization under a Biden administration. You know, interestingly we have a client at the moment uh, who has a Cuba sanctions compliance issue that they're dealing with and one of the questions is you know we're in the we're in the process of doing the analysis on voluntary disclosure and one of the factors is you know it's perhaps possible that you know disclosure of this particular violation might be an enforcement priority under a trump administration but it's very possible that under a biden administration it may be looked at uh, differently and perhaps you know ofac has a number of en- enforcement responses available to it, um, from issuance of a cautionary letter to, uh, we talked earlier about issuance of uh, a civil monetary penalty. You know, under a Biden administration, maybe you see for conduct that a Trump uh, administration would issue a penalty for, or to determine that a penalty was an appropriate response, perhaps maybe a lesser response under the new administration. You know, that's just one example. I think uh, two more obvious examples are Iran and Russia, you know, certainly, uh, obviously, um, the US uh, withdrew from the from from the Iran nuclear agreement, whether we're going to rejoin that agreement in some shape or form, it remains to be seen. But I think certainly, you'll see more engagement in that in that area of the world probably uh you know akin to what we saw under the obama administration when that when that agreement was was entered into and then i think russia is another obvious one you know there's been some pressure of late on the administration uh from you know from congress you know bipartisan initiative in, initiatives in congress which is uh unheard of in this day and age to apply some pressure to russia and i think you'll you'll probably see more of that um, perhaps uh, under a Biden administration than we saw in in the past four years under under the current administration.
0: So interesting changes could be around the corner or well, by the time this year's are here,
1: yeah, no doubt it's uh, you know s- certainly factors that our clients need to consider as they uh, assess their own risk environment, the controls that they that they implement uh, uh, to manage that risk. Sanctions compliance risk has become s- such a huge part of overall compliance in light of you know just some uh, some of the huge enforcement actions that that we've seen. You know, sanctions are complicated enough, and now you sort of you, you add the other variable in of uh, a potential change of direction. Now, which which always makes it interesting.
0: You know, we talked a little bit earlier about how active you are with investigations, and I know specifically cross-border investigations are a big part of what you do. You said how challenging it is to do just domestic investigations. Does it just escalate once you start doing cross-border investigations during COVID?
1: Yeah, a cross-border investigation introduces a number of issues that you really have to consider, many of which you need to drill down on at the start of the investigation. I'd say first and foremost are data privacy issues you have to pay attention to that. There are real consequences for getting it wrong. And you know. at the same time, the U.S. regulators, in particular the DOJ, have become data privacy experts, experts on data privacy laws around the world. So you're unable to sort of uh, respond to a request based on privacy grounds to be, you know, your arguments have to be strong and and your reasons need to be sound because they are well-versed in these issues. And again, you know, there are consequences for individuals at clients if, if you get this wrong. You know, the other thing that we consider always at the Start of an investigation, in particular one that crosses a border, is make sure that you've structured it in a way you know, you protect the privilege. And you know, when we do this, um, we're very sort of US centric, but the analysis really is in which jurisdiction might I expect some third party to come along and ask me to produce the materials or to produce the information um, that I learn or to produce the work product that I create in the course of this investigation. And the reality is that the jurisdiction where that is probably most likely um, is in the U.S. So at the start of an investigation, you really need to make sure that you're taking steps to protect privilege from a U.S. perspective and in any other jurisdiction where you, where you think it's important. And understanding the privilege laws of the jurisdiction, you know, where you're operating, where the conduct may have taken place, where the entity may exist is important because for example in the US privilege attaches to in-house lawyers well in a number of jurisdictions it does not so you just need to be careful as you structure investigations and as you as you develop an investigation plan that you consider you know these issues to make sure that you're protecting the work
0: that's an excellent point i Definitely enjoy the cross-border aspects of a lot of the work that I do, but it it can make things a little bit trickier as it relates to making sure that you are aware of what the different rights and options are in different jurisdictions. You know, there's a lot of discussion around voluntary self-disclosure considerations. And you've been the head of financial crime legal function at Barclays. So you have that interesting perspective of having worked at a financial institutions and now being counsel at a law firm, at an outside law firm. What should clients know when they're weighing options about voluntary self-disclosure?
1: Yeah. So, so, you know, whether to, to voluntarily self-disclose misconduct is probably one of the most important decisions a client will, will have to make. Because, you know, the reality is um, uh, there is no requirement to voluntarily self-disclose uh, misconduct. But as, you know, the, as the law has developed, as policies have developed over the years, uh, you know, there's a tremendous uh, benefit or there can be a tremendous benefit to corporations with a voluntary disclosure. You know, for example, you know, the, the corporate enforcement policy that's applicable to FCPA cases, that policy, under the policy, there is a presumption of declination where a company voluntarily discloses misconduct, uh, fully cooperates uh, with the government and, and fully remediates the conduct if you do those three things you know there's a presumption of of declination now, there, you know, there could be a downside uh, to that as well. You know, there's nothing that there, there's nothing wrong with your identify conduct, remediate the conduct uh, to make sure it doesn't happen again and move on. That is a perfectly reasonable approach. But when deciding whether or not to disclose or not disclose, really, it's, it's a weighing of the pros and cons. You know, sometimes it, you know, is there a likelihood that the government might find out about this conduct? But again, and not in a sense of, you know, you're hiding anything. But does it really make sense to sort of raise your hand and disclose the conduct to the government when a perfectly reasonable and responsible approach might be, well, let's make sure the conduct stops. Let's discipline the folks who are involved and let's put controls in place to make sure it doesn't happen again. I mean, that's a very you know, reasonable approach for a good corporate citizen to take uh, that does not involve uh, voluntary disclosure. So a number of factors. Um, From an OFAC perspective, a sanctions disclosure, you know, voluntary disclosure under the regulation can lead to a significant reduction in a penalty to the extent that OFAC, uh, which is the, the primary sanctions regulatory agency in the U.S., to the extent decide to assess a civil monetary penalty or decide that a civil monetary penalty is appropriate. A number of factors to disclose uh, with respect to disclosure, you know, the National Security Division of the DOJ has updated their policy on voluntary disclosures. And they put a bit of a wrinkle or reinforced a provision within their policy where they said with respect to sort of sanctions and export controls cases, that a voluntary disclosure to OFAC, first without disclosing to the DOJ does not apply. And it would not necessarily be considered a voluntary disclosure to the DOJ. And the DOJ investigates and enforces criminal sanctions violations and OFAC handles the civil side. So that added another wrinkle into the decision process when it comes to a sanctions violation. If If you're a company now and you've got a sanctions violation and you think it's appropriate to disclose, you now have to decide Well, does the conduct sort of rise to the level of being criminal? Because if it does, and if you disclose to OFAC and OFAC thinks, you know, this may be a case that ought to be referred to the National Security Division, well, if that happens, then you lose the benefits of voluntary disclosure with respect to the DOJ. So the question is, well, if I'm going to disclose to OFAC, should I disclose to the DOJ as well, just in case? And you know, I don't I don't think that's that's the approach that that needs to be taken. But it certainly adds a layer of complexity to what's already a very difficult decision as to whether or not a disclosure is appropriate.
0: So it sounds like there's a lot of weighing that needs to take place about the various different potential outcome. I mean, as we all know, it's all situation specific, but there's definitely a lot of other additional factors that people need to weigh.
1: The other uh, bit about a voluntary disclosure is, uh, let's just take the corporate enforcement policy. You know, whether a company gets the benefit of the policy depends on those three factors that I mentioned, whether there's sort of been full and complete cooperation and timely remediation. Well, those two factors are subjective, right? You know, what I think might be cooperation, what the company may think, and what what, what I as an outside counsel may think has been excellent cooperation. Sometimes the DOJ may not agree. And you know, it's it's a it's a bad day in a, you know in an enforcement matter when you're on the other side of the line from the DOJ. And after you know a year and a half into the case, they say, well, we you know we don't think you you've been very cooperative in this matter. As counsel to the client, your jaw sort of hits the table, especially where you've been sort of bending over backwards for the last 18 months to demonstrate cooperation. And you hear from the other side that you know they don't think that your cooperation necessarily has has passed must. So, those are factors that that you need to consider, and rem, you know remediation can be very expensive, and you know enforcement authorities in the u s, you know, maybe ten years ago you might say, uh, well, they don't they don't really know what a compliance program looks like." Well, now they do, and they're getting very good at evaluating compliance programs, and they have very you know specific ideas of what a good compliance program looks like. And they'll expect you as the company that's come in and sort of disclosed the conduct and said, yeah, we're going to remediate and enhance our program. They'll expect you to do certain things. And sometimes those things can be very expensive. So, And maybe you've made a risk-based decision or you might have made a risk-based decision to not implement certain controls that the DOJ thinks you should to consider the company as having full remediation you know these are all factors that you need to consider before you sort of you know cross that line of voluntary disclosure and you know these are factors of 50 factors that, that you're really going to need to consider as you make these decisions
0: makes sense no it's, it's definitely a lot to consider. Are there any lessons that you want to pass along? to current and prospective clients.
1: I think that, look, my, my experience in-house, uh, I think, has prepared me now as an external lawyer and has given me the perspective of, you know, what, what really are the sort of the pressures, the internal pressures that both in-house lawyers and in-house compliance folks deal with and are managing in the course of an investigation. It's very important as an external lawyer to explain the steps and explain the process and help your in-house counterparts to explain things to their to their stakeholders because uh, look, for example, in the context of sort of a big DOJ investigation, you know some of our non-US clients, it's difficult for them to understand this concept of cooperation and really the benefits of cooperation and not even in the voluntary disclosure context because oftentimes you get in front of the DOJ or you get a call from the DOJ and, and, and voluntary disclosure is not even an issue. but certainly cooperating with that investigation is. And really uh, articulating clearly so that the in-house folks can can explain to their stakeholders, this is what it's going to mean to cooperate. This is what this investigation is going to entail. And by the way, these are the things that we need to get our hand, our hands on immediately. One that, that I think is related to this is really at the start of an investigation, building trust with the enforcement authority that is investigating your client. And that's sort of part and parcel of cooperation. As you kick things off and you've made a decision to cooperate, it's important that you make that clear to the government and that you impress upon the government that your client and you are doing everything you can to get them the information that they need. Because uh, from a compliance perspective, especially where an issue takes a client off guard, in almost all cases, the client wants to know what happened as well. And the client's concerned about compliance. The client's concerned about making sure understanding what happened and remediating and implementing controls to make sure it doesn't happen again. So, in that sense, the interests are aligned. And sort of explaining that, you know, walking them through that can be helpful as you start what, what typically is a very long journey, in particular, if you're dealing with the DOJ.
0: No, I think that's an excellent point uh, in, in terms of the interests being aligned. And, and I see it all the time in some of the work that I do also, where depending on the investigation, especially if, if one of the concerns is, was there fraud? We are trying to work with our clients as well to help them understand what happened. How do we remediate it? And how do we make sure this never happens again? And being able to communicate the level of cooperation and and support, and quite frankly, just dedication from senior leadership is also important, right? Because I mean, one of the first things you wanna get a sense for is, okay, who is the team that I'm gonna be working with as it relates to this? How senior does it go? How involved is it? How engaged are they? Or who's getting updates and reports about this information? I mean, all of that also communicates the level of commitment that the client would have to the effort.
1: Yeah, and those conversations can sometimes be awkward, especially where you're getting a handle on what the facts are. I mean, you start to realize that maybe the conduct or maybe the misconduct has gone a, you know a bit higher in the organization than maybe you thought. So you know managing those pressures and conducting a fulsome investigation while also making sure that the right people within the organization at the management and, and, and perhaps the board level are aware of it can be tricky as things kick off and you're getting your hands around the facts and things are, things are moving quickly and you know you do have the external pressure of, of dealing with a regulator um, who's also interested in the conduct.
0: So let's uh, shift gears for a moment, because one of the interesting things about your bio also is that you spent six years on active duty in the U.S. Army. So tell me a little bit about, you know, what that experience was like for you. And are there things that you learn about leadership that you carry with you to this day from having that experience?
1: Yeah, so uh well th- thanks for bringing that up. It looked th- I was in the army for uh, I think as you said 6 years right after uh college. It was a great experience for me. Got to see some some great places, got to see some uh some some very cool things, had had some really uh some really neat jobs. And I do take a lot from that experience. I think, you know, I think two of the things that I I've, I've taken with me to this day and I think have helped me in my career are, you know, one, don't be afraid to admit uh, when you've made a mistake. And two, if you're going to ask, you know, one of the troops to do something, you ought to, you really need to be able to, to be willing to do it yourself. You know, don't ask someone to do something that you yourself have not done or are or, or not willing to do. And I think, you know, I'll tell a quick story about, you know, admitting that you made a mistake, which I, I do actually think was was an important moment in my career as a as a first year associate. One of my mentors is a guy named Dan Newcomb, who is a partner uh, at Sherman Sterling, just a terrific, uh, terrific guy, great FCPA experience and introduced me to, to sanctions work. And, you know, we were working on a matter when I was a first year and we had written a, a memo on a point of law for a client in the research. I missed, I missed a point. And the day after we had submitted the memo, we sort of realized Something's not right, and folks were all trying to figure out, okay, what what went wrong here. And I just immediately realized what had happened. Went went to Dan's office and said, Hey, Dan, I I messed this up. This is what it should have said. And by doing that, one we corrected the problem immediately. Sent the you know the updated memo to the client, and that issue was fixed. Um, but from that point forward, I think you know Dan trusted me sort of uh, implicitly because he knew that if I screwed something up, I was going to come to him and tell him. That, that it had happened and we wouldn't waste a lot of time trying to point figures and, and figure out what went wrong. And from that point forward, I did a ton of work for Dan, learned about the FCPA, was on monitorship teams, did a bunch of investigations and really learned economic sanctions as they were really becoming more prevalent as as a foreign policy tool. So that experience really sort of bonded my relationship or, or cemented my relationship with with him. And from that point forward it got a lot of great work that eventually led to, you know, led to my job at Barclays and now and now here at Baker McKenzie.
0: That's such a great lesson. I mean, I think that a lot of times when people make a mistake, they they want to hide it or cover it up or they get scared. Uh, and, and a lot of times the cover up just makes it worse. Uh, so that's just, yeah.
1: And, and look, and that's, yeah. And, and that's natural, right? I mean, uh, when, when you, especially in our professions making mistakes can, you know, that they, they can, they can be costly. So, you know, it's natural to not, uh, to not want to raise your hand, but as you said, oftentimes it just gets worse and, you know, everyone's better off if you can identify the source of the, of the mistake, fix it. And, uh, and everyone move on, and it just builds trust within a team. Uh, now, you make too many mistakes, you're going to be out of a job. But um, <laughs> yeah, you make make, make a few, <laughs> own up to them, and oftentimes, uh, oftentimes, good things happen.
0: No, I hear you. Now, I know that you are a lot more than just a partner at a major law firm. This podcast is about finance, leadership, and also fun facts that I may learn a thing or two about some of my guests. I definitely want to just explore a little bit about um, some of the other things that you do outside of work, and I'll start by sharing with you something that you already know just because of how we met, but I am absolutely obsessed about tennis. So I'm all in when it comes to tennis. Tell me what what are you obsessed about?
1: right now i am i have I have three uh young daughters so uh, you can imagine what my house is obsessed with right now and that is the upcoming uh Christmas holiday that is making sure that we, uh, we do the right thing when the when our elf on the shelf is watching the snowflake yeah so so what am I obsessed with? my three girls? Um, or I say my, I usually say my four girls, uh, including my wife, they, uh, they keep me quite busy. I guess you could say that I'm obsessed with them always, but even, even, <laughs> it's even more intense around the holidays.
0: Terry, I just want to thank you very much for coming on the show. I I really, truly appreciate your time and I look forward to the next time we get a chance to do something together.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. Tilsia, thanks again so much for having me. Uh, that, that was, that was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next month for another episode of Finance and Leadership. I will be discussing leading in risk management during uncertain times with Jeff Weaver, Executive Vice President at Key Corp. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email financeandleadership at fticonsulting.com. Success is a team sport. Thank you to the producers of this episode, Leah Danley and Brittany Bocchino.